Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of the Nantech Podcast. I'm your host Ian Cutris. Uh, joining me today on the podcast is one of our newest editors to join Nantech. This is Nate O. He works uh, with Ryan and doing GPU content. Hi everyone. And today's podcast is going to be a little bit special. Aside from the fact that we've had a few podcasts recently, but we had an unexpected invite in the mail a couple of weeks ago. One of the biggest things that underpins our industry is the uh, semiconductor manufacturing industry. It's not a topic that a lot of tech press cover because it's not directly consumer-related. It's something that Anantech takes an interest in because it underpins everything that we talk about. This is an industry where every generation, the companies that are involved on the leading edge of process technology, they bet everything they have on the next generation of process technology. So whether it's somebody like Intel who are betting their next generation of products on their next 10 nanometer process, or whether it's AMD's roadmaps putting all their eggs into Global Foundry's 7 nanometer basket, it is a very unique industry. Um... But when it comes to semiconductor fabs, so we're talking uh, the four leading fabs being Samsung, TSMC, Intel, and Global Foundries, arguably they all do what's called foundry business, where they sell their manufacturing capabilities to companies that want to create chips. Intel is a little bit different because 90%, 95%, 99% of what they do is just for them. Basically everything. Basically everything. Um, Whereas Samsung is about 50-50. TSMC is purely a foundry play, Global Foundries is a foundry play, but these people are very secretive about what they, um, about how exactly they do their manufacturing. I mean, sometimes they do a tech day and they tell us things about uh, fin height pitches and you know how dense the features are, but they never invite anybody to actually see how it's done. Everything that everybody sees about this part of the industry comes from vague photos and press releases. So I've been covering technology for the best part of eight years now, um, and I've seen inside, say, Gigabyte's factory where they make motherboards and graphics cards. Um, I've seen uh, MSI's factory, I've seen Huawei's factory, Um, but I've never seen a silicon factory, a semiconductor plant. So... My surprise when Global Foundry's uh, PR team reached out to us and said, hey, we're doing a tour of um, Fab 8. Uh, Fab 8 being their semiconductor fab they have, which is the one that's on the leading edge. We, uh, they, they, they said in the email, we invited Anand eight years ago uh, and thought it was great that he came. Would you be able to make it? I jumped up and down and shook Ryan, our editor-in-chief, and said, we must go, we must go. Um, and literally, this is the second ever media tour they've Global Foundries has ever done to Fab 8. I think they've done one, maybe two, to um, Fab 1 in Dresden in Germany. But this is this is such a rare occurrence in our industry to be able to go and see a Fab while it's working, while it's doing what it does. Um, and it again, it underpins so much of what we do um, that yeah, I I I just had to come. I just had to put on what they call a bunny suit, um, and I look stupid doing it. But what the hell? This is this is an opportunity. I mean, Nate, you you've been working with us um, for a few months now. What did you think when we when we first said, well, hey, you live nearby, come and see a fab with us? No, no it sounded incredible. Honestly, like that's one of the things that. You know, it is really, they call, call it a black box sometimes, right? Uh, some of the people that work there. And it kind of is a little bit. Some of the people that were there, they were saying that, oh, we went to so-and-so fab and all we got to see was this tiny little window through the door. We didn't even get to go inside the clean room at all. But this time, we got a tour through the clean room and the subfab, so it was really crazy. So it, it's, it definitely seems to be the first stage of um, Global Foundries doing more extended media reach out which um, I can only express my desire for this to happen, for them to tell us more about what they're doing and to understand their business because ultimately that makes, when we talk about companies like Global Foundries and makes our content that you guys read and or listen to just more detailed and more in-depth. So the fact that they were inviting uh, press out, I mean, so this was about 10, 10 press, 
um, slash analysts. They initially f- focus purely on the sort of northeast US for the people who are attending. And then, so this is where I hear you ask, well, why are you, you there, Ian? You're based in London. Um, well, so they still had Anand on the email list and he was based in North Carolina. So um, we ended up getting an email and uh, I don't care that it was meant to be Northeast US <laughs> anyway. You know, I was prepared to make the flight over. Um, but it was, yeah, a very small group. The start of um, Global Foundries doing sort of more media reach out. There was a little interesting element to the fact that they were saying, hey, come and uh, join us on a media tour. Because usually when a company invites you to see one of their facilities, it's in combination with uh, an announcement or a product. Or a reason, you know. I mean, there has to be a reason to go. And ultimately, there didn't seem to be a reason. I mean, during the trip, they said there would be new, no new information. I'm using new in you know quotes because we did actually find out a, a good few things that are worth talking about. But they said, you know, this is, we're not, doing any major announcements about a new process we're not we're not going to we're going to talk about what we do but it's you know stuff that's already public but no new announcements what they did say they would be doing was talking us through their 14 nanometer their very you know mature 14 nanometer process that they licensed from samsung and also you know the variants of that process that they have optimized internally talking about the new 12 nanometer process that's being used with a few customers. They were going to talk about 7 nanometer, um, which is their next generation of uh, high performance and leading edge uh, process node. And they were also going to talk about um, EUV, extreme ultraviolet um, fabrication process lithography. You know, everything that is going to be a critical point within the semiconductor industry, within the silicon industry, within the processor industry, within the integrated circuit industry for the next three, five, you know, 10 years. Global Foundry says that 7 nanometer for them is going to be a super long-lived node, as well as, you know, 14 nanometer is. And So bringing us in and, you know, to talk about it was something that we had to do. So Global Foundries, if you don't know, um is a you know a, they are their their business model is as a foundry they build um silicon chips for companies that want to buy them they started as a spin out from AMD um so AMD separated out its foundry business from its um, chip design business and now global foundries runs as a separate entity they have then since you know acquired other companies and there's been this deal with IBM to have a research sharing and team migration. I mean, and they um, they also took that deal with like $2 billion and like they took the fabs off of IBM too. So they have that new one in Fishkill or the old one and the one in Burlington. Both of them used to be IBM, but now they're under Global Foundries. So. And yeah, they're within a couple of hours drive, yeah. <laughs> drive of uh, where we were. So that, that little uh, Northeast corridor, it has their... So they do most of their R&D actually in Albany. Uh, with the University of Albany, they have a, like the College of Nanoscience Engineering or something like that that's been sponsored. So they work with IBM and Samsung there. Um, and in, in fact, most of the people who we met uh, today, literally today at Global Foundries, you know, they told us, well, you know, 20, 25 years IBM, and now they've been three or five years uh, Global Foundries. And, you know, Necessarily, what they do hasn't changed, but the way that it's been structured means that there's more vertical integration and more synergy, um, and it's helped them as a business uh, have that deal with IBM, and it's helped IBM you know maintain its research and focus on without worrying about how to manufacture chips to a cert- to a certain extent. So, Global Foundries has uh, many customers. They don't talk about their customers unless their customers want to talk about what want them to talk about them. So Global Foundry's biggest customers are AMD, obviously, and IBM, obviously. Um, they also have other big customers which they don't talk about. And then they have lots of um, smaller customers that uh, you use maybe some of their older processes. Um, so they still run a fab that produces 180 nanometer chips. And they have other fabs that do uh, other inter- intermediary process nodes, uh, ones that may be more suited to other types of silicon, like IoT 
or uh, radio frequency type silicon. So Global Foundries has you know a lot of fingers in the silicon pie. In terms of scale, they're about a sixth of the size of TSMC. Um, so they very are they very much are the underdog in terms of the foundry business. That doesn't necessarily stop them much in any way. It's it's a very much an underdog mentality. They have to think outside the box in order to be at the leading edge when they've got such a major player um, who has who they who has a lot of customers. But global foundry. So we're currently sitting in New York. The fab that we visited, Fab Eight is based near Saratoga Springs in um, in a place called Malta. It's a very, very... Well, I, I was going to say it's a very long sort of three, four-hour drive, um, though we spent most of the time talking yeah. <laughs> on the drive, and it kind of went pretty quickly. And it's beginning of February, and it's very cold up there. It's, um, it's just like normal upstate New York. Like, it's just kind of... It's pretty, and there's nothing there, and it's kind of cold, so... Well, you know, 15 degrees Fahrenheit, and apparently this weekend it's the uh, Chowder Festival weekend. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not interested in Chowder, I'm more interested in uh, semiconductors. But yeah, so the idea of this trip was to visit the clean room, um, so the, where, they, where they make the chips, to visit what they call the subfab. So this is under the um, fabrication floor, they have to have infrastructure to supply the equipment with all the chemicals and the cooling that they need. Um, and it is, is, is almost construction site like. I mean, we'll, we'll go into it. Um, I want to specifically spend some time talking about the clean room and some time talking about the subfab. Um, we were given talks by, um, a couple of the, uh, SVPs and executives of Global Foundry. Specifically, we had a talk from Gary Patton, the chief technology officer. Of Global Foundries and Thomas Caulfield, the um, the general manager of the Fab Eight facility, and um, we also reached out to Global Foundries early in the process in their process of inviting media. I managed to get a one on one, a two on one interview with Gary Patton, the CTO, and um, so we recorded that later uh, earlier today in the afternoon. Um, I've sent that off to. Um, uh, one of our editors to be uh, transcribed and we'll hopefully get that out to you um, very soon. It might even be out before the podcast okay. is. So, I mean, let's go through the trip. I kind of want to go through the, uh, the trip in the order that I did it. Um, so, I mean, there, there were there were 10 press. They split us up into two groups of five. Uh, for some odd reason, Nate and I were split up into different groups. But ultimately, I think... Um, actually, that, that gives us a chance to have different perspectives on what yeah. we saw. Yeah. And we also get got told um, different parts of the facility, um, even though it's you know, the same guides. <laughs> so, let, so let's start with what I started with. So I went to the clean room first, the, um, you know, the, where they make the chips, where they move around the wafers, where they do the deposition, the etching, um, where they blast everything in order to create you know, the Ryzen processors, the IBM Z uh, processes and um, it was fun. Now, clean rooms are—I uh, mean, it's self-explanatory. Uh, these processes that uh, make the chips have to be so carefully controlled, down to even the nanometer particulates in the air. If you're designing a chip with several billion transistors, you do not want any defects. If somebody's stray hair <laughs> goes in, smaller than that, really. Well, no, no, no. That's what I'm saying. You know. So I was told the clean room is a deodorant-free zone. <laughs> Let's, that that puts it into perspective. Somehow we were given um, special clearance to wear deodorant. Um, but in order to get prepared, you have to go to the it, to, to to an extreme with regards to how you're uh, what you're wearing. So they, they this is called what's called a bunny suit. Um, so the clean room is what they call a level three clean room. Because um, there are different grades of clean room about how dirty um, it has to be. Oh, sorry, how how clean it has to be. <laughs> oh, um, so we were done. We were done a bunny suit. So this is um, you know a very specific type of hood. Um, the an, an actual suit. We had to wear covers over our shoes, and then put on special special shoes over the covers over our shoes. 
um, two sets of gloves, so uh, cloth gloves, then nitrile gloves. Um, we weren't allowed to take anything. We weren't allowed to take anything in that we could take out of our pockets. Um, should say absolutely no pictures because this is all sensitive IP. We literally have to paint you a picture of words. Um, and when when I come around to writing our trip up, it will. I'll try and paint pictures of words rather than you know bullet points. You um, didn't have to wear the uh, the beard, you know. Oh, did you? No, you had to wear hair nuts as well. And for people who had even stubble, sometimes they just gave them you know the beard covers. Yeah, uh, no, I'm 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 sporting a, a three day stubble, but um, no, they didn't. I didn't have to wear that, thankfully. Um, but yeah, no, face masks and you know, special wires in it pinch so it's close to your face, so when you're breathing out of your nose, you're not breathing your germs everywhere so it you know it takes a good 10-15 minutes to get into this kit um and when you put everything on you have to sort of stamp on a blue sticky floor i mean this is literally to get the stuff off the bottom of your shoe the bottom of your shoes and even the off the stuff which you've just put on which has come out of a nitrogen sealed um plastic bag because that's how they buy them um, and you know they get sent away to be reused when you uh, to be washed and then repackaged when they're done. But yeah, even having a blue sticky floor, I mean, it was to a point where they they would have three or five people go across the blue sticky floor, make them stamp on it a few times, and then they would sort of like peel a layer <laughs> layer away so there was a fresh sheet of sticky underneath. Not even that. At the end of the day, they take the whole thing off and then put another stack in. Yeah, so. this is you know ultra requirements to keep this room free of um some somebody's stray germs uh meat which is fair enough this is you know i'm surprised that processes work after 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 seeing what we did today um so as we go in no pictures we were allowed to take um notes but we weren't allowed to use our own notepads and paper because they are too dirty so they um, gave everybody the opportunity to. Um, well, it's it's. I mean, I'm holding mine here. It's like a vinyl notebook, you know. And um, I don't think the pens were necessarily anything special. They yeah, they seem to be so. standard. They do say clean room on it. Right? Standard biros that say clean room. Um, but you know, we were using that to to write our notes because as we we're going through the tour, you know, the amount of numbers we were being told and of everything that was going on. I mean. I'd like to think I have a good memory. I don't think I would have remembered everything that was said, but, you know, fair enough. Take notes. So um, we enter the clean room um, in this in, the, in these bunny suits, um, you know, sweat slowly starting to build up in your pits um, because you are in several layers of warm clothing, and then you feel for the poor souls that spend 12 hours on the show floor, on, on the show floor, on the uh, factory floor with no deodorant. Um but then, then we go in, and the first thing you kind of notice is a change in the air pressure. So clean rooms are designed such that the mo- the parts of the process that have the opportunity to contaminate um, the wafers are at have make sure that everything goes from clean to dirty. So when everything is blown out of the system, the most contamination potential is near nearest the exit so there's that it's like if you have a chassis and you have more intake fans you know, oh yeah then... so um you know positive air pressure and negative air pressure but you know you walk in and uh, you you are presented with a room full of equipment that looks very white as you know people expect to see on pictures the room itself so there wasn't white light that you might expect. There was it was a sodium um, yellow light. So if anybody remembers the old street lamps, where they have um, a particular so sodium has two particular wavelengths. I think around the six hundred and twenty nanometer mark. Um, yes, that's me remembering trying to remember my uh, <laughs> my chemical physics lessons. Um, but it, it was bathed in yellow light and. Why is it yellow? Why is it not white? And then we were told to kind of look up to the ceiling. And we're looking up and there are masses and masses of um, tracks and machines running along the tracks. So we were told that, you know, within within the clean room, uh, so the clean room being about 450,000 square feet, they have 14, 15 miles of tracks, which have machines that go around... Um, the whole facility and what they're carrying 
is that so it's like they carry two types of things. One 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 type is called a foop, F O U P. Front opening unified pot. That's what they call it. Apparently, this is a standard, um, but it's it's a pod that holds twenty five wafers um, in a black sealed box. Um, and the reason why it's black is because when a wafer has photoresist on, you don't want the ambient light interacting with the photoresist and screwing up what you're manufacturing. Um, but these these foops are designed to be carried from machine from machine to machine through using these um, automated. Um, or they're automated machines, so that they get put on, say, um, a lithography machine um, in a standard capacity, and it, that goes into the lithography. The foop goes into the, the lithography machine, um, where it can then be opened up, you know, under dark and be used to, you know, do 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 the do the, do the lithography. <laughs> <laughs> it's late, and. So then it comes out of the machine and then it gets taken off to the next one. Um, so all the wafers um, move around. There are, um, aside from foops, they're called... Fosbies? Like Fosbies. Front opening shipping boxes, apparently. So those are transparent. Uh, those are, I think, raw or finished. That It doesn't matter if, you know, if light gets in or not. So, so raw materials, so completely fresh wafers... Or even um, completely fresh elements to certain machines. So, I mean, this this system could send um, anything it was programmed to to anywhere in the fab. Um, but yeah, or finished wafers. Um, the, what do they say? You know, potential for um, for a quarter of a million dollars worth of um, not nicely fine silicon, um, which suddenly goes disappearing. Uh, no, I didn't get opportunity to get anything. So, I mean, just to get a bit like. I guess if you try to picture it in your head, it's like a whole bunch of like crates going all over the place, like in a highway that's like attached to the top, you know, of the ceiling. So they likened the foops and the Fosbys to like vinyl boxes. So Mm -hmm. instead of vinyl, you know, it's silicon wafers and they're just traveling all along. Everything's automated and they kind of like stop and go like traffic, except, you know, they're all automated. So, well, so, so, so this is the thing we were told that, um, this clean room um, is the most automated um, factory in the U.S. Um, they said, I think, compared to all other fabs, they said they're 90-whatever percent automated more so than the other ones. They were able to do that because they started from scratch the fab and purposely made it automated that way. So the only the only physical humans on the, uh, on the fab floor are people doing maintenance or people uh, people having to do random checks it's there is nobody involved in the manufacturing process the the carts going along this these tracks this highway um you know they are sending their position to a central um control facility a hundred times a second so they know exactly where they are they know exactly where they have to go um if there's an issue it gets flagged in the system immediately and you know maybe that cart goes off to the repair facility or Somebody has to come out and sort it. Um, they make this beeping sound. Did you hear? It's like oh. it's like Mary had a little lamb, but like in, in a chirping sound. So, so I was told uh, the the carts make that noise when they can't read the ID of the foop they are carrying. Uh, I see. So they've been told to go pick up a certain foop, and they do, and they assume it's the right foop, but they continually check to make sure that nobody's sort of kind of replaced it. You know, a fully automated zero people operation, except for maintenance and repair and monitoring. So the clean room itself, you know, I said it was the, about four hundred and sixty thousand square feet. Um, what they split the clean room up into what they call three phases, and the phases are based on when those parts of the building were built. So phase one was first, then phase two, and phase three is currently in the process of being fully put in. Um, as I understand it, um, yeah, they, I think they mentioned that phase three they used to use for R and D, but at this point they kind of cleared it out, and then it's just being used for you know production, like the other two phases. And it sounds like they need more and more yeah. capacity. Um, but the whole the whole facility can do um, sixty thousand uh, wafer starts per quarter or twenty thousand wafer starts per month. Compare that to some of the bigger semiconductor factories that can do in excess of a million wafer starts per quarter. 
you know, it's it's still it's still very big. It's not necessarily the biggest, um, but it is the most automated. It's also, you know, this is solely for 14 nanometer and also technically 7 nanometer that they're ramping up. So Yeah, I mean, th- this is their leading edge factory. Uh, so 14, 12, and uh, 2B7 and 2B EUV. The fab is powered. I mean, how do they do all this automation? Well, they have three data centers on site to drive all this automation. Why do they have three? Um, the answer I got told was redundancy. I it's mean, always a good answer, technically. Yeah. Uh, what do you need? Two levels of redundancy. <laughs> I mean, we were told that these these data centers are hundreds of servers big, so you're having hundreds of data servers doing the control, then hundreds of data servers doing the backup, and then hundreds of data servers doing the backup backup. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, this is a facility that runs twenty four seven. So that it has to be up and running all the time. Any you know downtime or any time a machine isn't being used is you know potentially wasted. So the processes and the orders have to be optimized to take you know keep the machines at one hundred percent utilization. Actually, I want I want to go back to um, the tracks because uh, one thing that they said is so when you have a bunch of wafers that are ready to go into a machine, um, they may ha- they may have to wait for other wafers to be processed first. So technically, they have to be stored somewhere. Now, the conventional way is to essentially keep the storage by the machine. I mean, like you're physically just waiting to go in beside the machine. Now, global foundries are using um, their track system to transport all the wafers. They're also using the track system as a form of storage. But they're storing wafers that need to be processed by a certain machine above the machine rather than beside it. And the reason is because this reduces a machine's XY footprint. So when a machine would necessarily, you know, process so many wafers in a given time, um, if you had the, a certain amount of storage next to it, you know, sort of in the XY plane, it could add an extra 10 feet to the machine. And then suddenly you've just lost a whole row of um, metrology machines that do uh, the monitoring. So they change the way the machines work by having storage bins above each of, each of the tools, which is fair enough. I mean, their, their premium is XY space. Their premium isn't Z space. Um, I mean, with clean room, we were told that um, if you look at how much um, the whole clean room costs, you're looking at about $5,000 per square foot, or, you know, three to $5,000 per square foot. Um, you know, it, Kind of feels like that house prices in London are going that way <laughs> right now, and they're looking at innovative ways in order to improve both the workflow, reduce the costs, and to a certain extent, that might sound silly because I mean every business should be looking ways to reduce costs um, and improve efficiency. Um, but uh, our tour from the Global Founders Rep was very um, enthusiastic that this was a key part and they say they've even you know painted certain elements of their design um, to keep it the way they have um, I mean in, in it, this is they're kind of pushing it as their I suppose killer feature right that it's so automated and at no point is a human really touching the wafers or moving the wafers anywhere so this is their way to kind of get an edge on other fabs that simply haven't been built this way or don't use this level of automation. So, I mean, how how long does it take to build a new fab? Two, three yeah. years, and, and then how, fit how it out money, and optimize really? it. Yeah. So, I mean, don't get it wrong. Very, very, very impressive. And yeah, and they were saying that you know, for one of their standard fourteen nanometer chip designs, that you know, they were, you're requiring you know, sixty masks and photo lift steps, and something for seven nanometer will require you know eighty five. Um, which is, you know, talking about 7 nanometer in the clean room brings us on to uh, EUV, um, the next stage of, you know, tools to be used in the manufacturing process. So the Global Foundries has officially stated that their first generation of 7 nanometer will be still be using the same sort of processes they are now, using uh, 193 nanometer argon fluoride stuff. <laughs> stuff. Laser. Lasers, yes. Um, and using you know quadruple patterning in order to get the metal layers at the right um, size and density. What they are doing for their second generation um, seven nanometer is implementing 
EUV into certain parts of the steps to reduce the number of overall steps. So there's a co- so there's a time benefit analysis, there's a cost benefit analysis. But EUV has been talked about for 20 years. Um, so the fact that it's almost getting ready now means that Global Foundries is now putting in the machines um, into into their fab. So we're in the clean room. We move from you know the phase one part of the building into the phase two part of the building, and we see you know the giant logo ASML. Well, ASM they did have didn't put the panel. The oh, they even had the SM. It's, I only saw I only saw the A. Oh. So they obviously they fast. I mean, you, you you went into the clean room after me, so they had obviously put in that. So you, I, I did see a lot of pipes going in. Gotcha. The, you know, very uh, very complex machines, but. So Global Foundries has uh, retrofitted part of their phase two side of the clean room building um, with uh, room for four EUV machines. Um, They currently had one that was installed but being calibrated. They had a second one that was um, almost in bits waiting to be constructed. And then they had space for a third and a fourth, uh, but they haven't purchased a third or a fourth machine yet. Technically, they do have a third that is with ASML um, as you know part of their develop part of their development cycle, which they could pull out if they wanted to bring it. But I mean, we did speak with uh, Gary Patton about how they think they you know do they worry where their third and fourth tool is going to come from, and he said that they don't what that even though they've not been purchased yet, he doesn't think that fight, getting one will be an issue. But hey, you've got EUV machines that they say. Uh, you know, in the process of being, <laughs> um, these, so, I mean, if you look at the, um, lifetime of these sorts of, over the lifetime of these sorts of machines, um, the biggest cost is actually maintenance, um, keeping the, keeping the machines up and running. So, but because these machines are so complex, in order to get into the machine and in order to, um, fit and replace parts that need repairing, um, you need to be able to pull them out. Now, because of the complexity and the density of these machines, uh, Global Foundries actually had to install cranes uh, over each one of the four bays for the EUV machines. Apparently, they needed those to even bring them in after they cut a hole in the wall or whatever because the machines were too big. So So these machines are like five times the size of the normal tools and of normal, like, I mean, I'm kind of guessing, but that's how large they are, so... Um, so, so I was told they actually had to cut a hole in the roof, you know, and then increase the the available Z height they had in the clean room in order to put these in. But uh, so, of the machines that they had, um, it's not Global Foundries doing the installation of these machines. Actually, ASML have dedicated teams who install these. And based on you know when the EUV tools were purchased, the first one came in, and they had a team doing specifically the installation. Um, then they moved on to the second machine and started installing the second machine. And they used, you know, they're using what uh, they've learned from the first machine, uh, inputting the first machine to then then use that experience for the second machine. Um, so it's it's not a case of they bought two machines at once; they actually bought them staggered. Um, but it's we were told that since they've it's been thirteen months for them to just to just to install the first machine, you know, from Initial plans that required retrofitting. Um, there's also a lot of work in the subfab that has to go on. Um, so 13 months might sound long, but pretty sure the second, third, and fourth machines will, you know, very quickly follow. Um, we were told that currently the installation has um, the purchase and the installation, the preparation has cost Global Foundry 600 million dollars. Um, I'm not sure what you think about that number. Um, in cer- for certain ways in my mind, I think, actually, that's quite cheap. And in other certain <laughs> ways in my mind, it's, actually, no, that's very expensive. <laughs> I mean, s- somebody give me $600 million, I probably won't spend it on EUV. But... So, yeah, EUV is a technology that they plan to bring in for their second generation of 7 nanometer. though, you know, depending on how and exactly when it's ready, there are you know some complications that we might go into in a little bit, but... Um, they're initially going to introduce it for the contacts and vias, so they're going to keep it away from the critical paths of chip design. Um, they're going to make it so any customer that 
builds um, a high performance chip on the seven nanometer non EUV process can hope they should it should be able to replace some of the metal layers with a single pass with EUV and there'd be negligible difference in um, to from the point of um, the chip designer um, for power performance and all it does is it increases the, th- uh, the throughput of the system and makes the process slightly cheaper. The EV it re- uh, reduces three layers of the process down to one. Technically, the throughput um, of the machine drops. So with a standard uh, 14, nan- 14 nanometer process, uh, those machines can process 275 wafers an hour. Um, these EV machines are sp- supposed to be re- rated at 125 wafers per hour. But if it's doing the equivalent of three times the work, you know, you're essentially going from 275 per hour to the equivalent of 375 per hour. And each layer, too, that they remove, it's not, I guess one of them was talking that it's not just like one step. Each layer requires like multiple steps and multiple chances to introduce more defects. So by, even if it's just three steps, it's like there's sub-steps within it. So you're actually avoiding more possibilities for defects. Which increases yield, uh, reduces cost, um, and yeah, higher throughput. Um, so the the first change of uh, introducing EUV just to contacts and vias uh, should be as long as the as long as the EUV works should be easy, easily implementable. Um, EU, to, when they're going they're going to use EUV more extensively in the third generation of seven nanometer. Um, that's going to require a bit more work from the chip designers um, to actually make that happen. Um, so it's not just it's not going to be such a simple process. But we were told that, you know, don't expect EUV in 2018. Apparently they already have customers chomping at the bit to say, get it done, get it done, get it done. And they have to turn around and say, it's not done yet. This, these things do require time. Um, I mean, speaking with, speaking with Gary Patton, the CTO, he has no, I know, no qualms. He, he, he has no issues and sees no distinct problems in the horizon he fully expects euv to be a part of their seven nanometer um, process families it seems like in 2019 or at least risk production in 2019 which is fair enough right i mean he was saying also you know they're customers that want seven nanometers now so you know instead of just telling them oh well we can't have it until euv is ready they're just going to keep going with optical and just quadruple patterning and then just get it out to them. Yep, yep. Um, I mean, the the last element I saw in the clean room um, was the control uh, center where they do the monitoring of the clean room um, and also some of the maintenance. And they said they have uh, six people on maintenance at any one shift and seven people um, doing the control. So, okay, so I'll clarify. When I say maintenance, I mean um, when when a machine needs to come in and be tinkered with they do it in the control room or next to the control room. But out of the other seven people who are doing the monitoring, um, one of them stays in the monitoring room um, and uses a radio to talk to the other six people on the floor. If you know one of the one of the um, fruits or the carts has had an issue, or you know a system's had an issue to go and to go and fix it, and they switch around every um, couple of hours because. Spending 12 hours in one of those bunny suits. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Um, don't forget the cleaners, too. There's basically always somebody that's... Some people that are going around vacuuming and just cleaning the floors all the time. So. It's Yeah, they they, t- they take clean room very seriously. I mean, especially with a bunch of grubby press yeah. walking along. <laughs> um, I, di- I did ask one of the guys, um, how long do they have to budget for if they want to go use the bathroom while in a bunny suit? I didn't get an answer to that question. <laughs> oh. Um but, you know, given how long it took us to get in and out, um, I can imagine it easily being 20 minutes or so. But okay, so the clean room is was meant to be the highlight of the of the trip. And um, up until today, I always said the best part of, say, a factory tour is getting into an anechoic chamber. Getting into one of those soundless rooms where you can hear the blood rushing through your ears because it's an experience that um, press who have never been in one they will remember or they'll get freaked out or they'll enjoy it or, you know, 
I always above. I, I know. I, I say I would love to sleep in one because I live next to a busy road. Um, so getting an opportunity to go into a clean room it is it's on another scale of um, you know the opportunities that we get to do in this job. And you know, I would love for all of our readers who are interested in this sort of thing to be able to do what we did. Um, and I'm sorry, I can't get you in. I don't have clearance. But as important as they are for our industry and, you know, I I can't say, I, I can't compare it to any other clean room because I've not been in other, any other clean room. But I've been doing this job so long and I've only been in one clean room. <laughs> so... So what we're saying is it's really cool, but you probably won't be a, ever ever be able to get in one. No, no, I, 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 I say it's really cool, and if TSMC ever want to invite us to one of their clean rooms so we can do a comparison, um, please please gain contact. Um, and you know, so and this this trip that we've done, I want to um, write it up. And uh, just to clarify, um, Global Foundries invited us; they didn't pay for anything. So, I mean, it's, we want to write this because we find it interesting and we think you'll find it interesting, not because, you know, money's being exchanged or anything. So moving on from the clean room, the next uh, place I went into was a, was the subfab, the underneath uh, the clean room. I mean, Nate, you went into the subfab first, so maybe you have a different opinion here, but the idea of the subfab is that it contains all the... Um, pipes for the cooling all the chemicals that get sent up to the fab it manages all the waste um, this all has to be done underneath the fab so what so what they have is they had the clean room on the third floor and the subfab was on the first and second floor um, essentially it was just you know all one big um, high rise in z height and we were told that um, you need about six feet of subfab space for one uh, six square feet of subfab space for one square feet of fab, uh, so clean that room space. So for clean room space. So when you have about you know five hundred thousand square feet of clean room space, you need three million square feet of subfab space. Um, so what they kept using the analogy was like an iceberg, like the top of the iceberg, the very pretty part is the clean room, but everything else, every single thing that powers the tools, maintains them, cools them, all that stuff is in the subfab. So. It's, it's you can you can tell that as much as an impressive operation the clean room is the subfab is you know the more nitty gritty mechanicals of you know ev- everything in the subfab is done at scale because you need lots of chemicals you need lots of reagents you need lots of cooling yeah, whereas think... in the clean room you're dealing with nanometers <laughs> of uh, doping materials so. So we were told in in the subfab that uh, if you need subfab space for things like EUV, it's going to require more space than subfab stuff for D uh, for um, DUV for optical. Uh, seven nanometer requires more subface than fourteen nanometer. So as you go down the process nodes, you're just going to need bigger and bigger and bigger spaces. So if you have you know your five hundred thousand, four hundred sixty thousand square feet of clean room. Underneath that, you have 460,000 square feet of subfab, and then you need six times that dotted around to be, you know, and have easy access straight into um, underneath the clean room. So the subfab has uh, what they call a sealed pop out um, for all the pipes that go into the clean room. These are sort of 12 to 18 inch pipes um, that inside may have the separate pipes for all, all the chemicals and all the reagents. These are absolutely sealed. I mean, they're sealed so contaminants from the, the subfab don't get into the clean room. But technically, the air pressure air pressure is such that if there is um, complications, then contaminant then actually the air pressure goes down into the subfab, so contaminants go out the subfab rather than up into the clean room. You know, fair enough. One one thing I did notice is that there were a lot of um, pipelines uh, labeled slurry. Now, whenever I hear the word slurry, I think of um, not very nice smelling material found on a farm. Um, but no, I was told that, you know, this is uh, what they use is called uh, polishing slurry. So when they're uh, doing the grinding, when they're doing the lift, when they're doing the etch, um, you know, they need to keep polishing the wafer. And they they said they use um, up to 30 different types of slurry. Um, so 
I mean, the chemicals involved, if you've ever seen like a manufacturing plant where um, they have a big block of aluminium and then they use a six axis thing to actually make, you know, the gear lever that they sell on your stupid car, um, you know, that they continually use, you know, polishing slurry for that. Um, so that, that, that was how it was explained to here, explained to, to me. And, um, so, so some of these slurries are apparently unstable emulsions. So they have to mix them on site and they have massive bowsers for that. And again, you just see pipes that say slurry, slurry, and it's not a farm, I promise. Um, they also have, uh, they also have to bring in inert gases because when you're, Dealing with wafers, you want to be able to control the atmosphere so nothing reacts. So you buy. Um, they, they they said they use a lot of esoteric, or at least a few esoteric uh, inert gases. Um, I mean, aside from the noble gases like uh, neon argon, probably a little bit of xenon even. Um, but everything, th- things like nitrogen, um, which obviously gets used a lot uh, as it's very uh, a lot cheaper and inert. They actually make that on site. Uh, for some of the things they do, they actually also need oxygen, um, and that's also produced on site. It's cheaper to, for them to make it than it is for them to buy it. I'm pretty sure they said they needed hydrogen for EUV, so they had to get a lot of that or something like that. Oh, uh, did, did they say if they actually produce the hydrogen? No, no, they had to. They have they to, to buy it, in, yeah. yeah. Um, also, the subfab deals with um, all the cooling um, and you know some of the reagents that require water. Now, obviously, you're not just going to get water out the tap. You're not going to get water out the stream. Uh, you, you, for a lot of what they need, they need ultra pure water. So they actually make that on site. Now, I say you know, they don't get water from the tap. They actually take the water from the Hudson River. Do they really? <laughs> yeah. Um, but that goes through their filtering process. They use um, iron exchange columns uh, to do that. And they, they, they use 4 million gallons of ultra pure water a day. I had to ask this is that it actually is US gallons, not UK gallons, because we're in America. Um, but that's a lot of ultra pure water. Um, they cool it down to 59 degrees. Again, I had to clarify that's 59 degrees Fahrenheit, not 59 <laughs> degrees Celsius. Um, but they, so that's how they have the water. I, we also saw a machine and um, that they told us was part of the water purification, and it said pH 8.77. And I said, so you have ultra-pure water, but it's slightly alkaline. And um, the, the the guide who was t- taking us around, a um, guy called Mike Hall, so enthusiastic about what he does. He says he's worked, there for, he's worked for IBM and Global Foundries for over 30 years. I want to get that guy on camera. He He really loves his job. Um, but he, you know, he was saying that uh, based on the tools that they use, they actually do need a slightly alkaline, ultra pure water solution. Which is fair enough. Something I didn't know. But uh, we, so when you're using so much water, and they actually have two five million gallon storage tanks on site for if they can't get enough water out the river, if it's a dry season or whatever, um, they also have to do their own water waste management um, for a lot of it. So they'll try and you know, take the impurities that they've introduced into the water out and actually reuse the water. So rather than just getting it and then dumping it, getting it and dumping it, they're actually trying to cycle as much as they can, um, you know, because it's green and because it makes sense. And I fully expect it's probably cheaper as well, given that they use so much. We were also told in the subfab about, um, you know, the electrical capacity of um, Fab 8, Apparently the site is rated for 120 um, megawatts, but at any one time they typically use about 93. Um, and in the summer that goes up to 100. But the whole fab is using that 24-7. And they don't generate their own power on sites. They have to take it from the national grid. They said they have two 150 kilovolt lines from the national grid, um, which they you know use steppers and transformers internally to take it down to what they want. Um, they do have a backup power system, as you would expect a facility of this size to have. Um, they call it the uh, critical power system, the CPS. Um, we were told that uh, this 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 system was is designed uh, to provide 39 megawatts, and they take that power from flywheels. You know, f- flywheels as an energy store, as, compo- as opposed to say big batteries. Uh, you know, power stations use flywheels to make sure that. Um, 
power is regulated uh, to the national grid. So flywheels aren't new. They said they actually have um, a couple of different types of flywheel. I actually managed to extract some numbers out of them. So they have 10 uh, lots of 24-inch flywheels that run at 3,600 RPM that are high mass. They have 12 bigger 36-inch flywheels that run at 16,000 RPM but are at lower mass. And we were told that, you know, from it, if at any point they do need the critical power system, uh, it can take over from the national grid in three seconds. Chances are that if that happens, you're going to lose whatever wafers are currently in process. Um, but ev- it means that everything that's being held up um, by the carts on the tracks is going to be fine. But uh, they said they've only ever had to use uh, the critical power system uh, once, and that was due to an accident. Uh, but the, that. Um, most of the wafers that were currently in production at the time were test wafers, so they didn't lose much in the way of product for customers. But we were told that you know, on a on a full scale, um, that they've been running Fab Eight um, at one hundred percent capacity for the last five quarters. So what's that? That's Q four twenty sixteen, then Q then the whole of twenty seventeen. Mm. What products came out in twenty seventeen <laughs> that required? <laughs> Uh, the fab to go into full march so everything that's being made at fab eight um you know customers can request more capacity uh, but they either have to pay more or uh, ask global foundries to build more fab but they're, they're working on seven nanometer they're working on euv i mean that, that was pretty much it for the um for the for the subfab tour i mean i i think the iceberg analogy is quite good because for as much glitz and glamour is you know in the clean room, you know, and ultimately it's, it's most of the, the clean room is the one that usually gets all the praise because they're the one that's producing the end product. The subfab is essentially the heart uh, and the soul of of the fab itself because that if if that wasn't there, if there weren't the people there, um, nothing would happen up top. They kept saying also that it, that I guess the subfab was really clean at least compared to other subfabs, but it's it's equally I guess as regimented as the clean room. Like there's tape for any item that could be moving. Any forklift has a specific place to live. Any any ladder, anything that's could be out of place has a taped place to be. So, you know. <laughs> so so um, in in factories and you know it, it was obvious in fabs as well. Um, if there's ever a problem with a machine that requires an immediate shutdown, you have an immediate stop button. Um, and in Fab 8, these are called emo buttons. Um, so, you know, it doesn't turn you into um, an emo. Um, but the idea is that it puts the machine to a complete stop. Um, and uh, so we were going through some of the subfab, and um, the guide was saying, you know, these, these, these buttons, you know, they're a very critical safety aspect of what they do. Um, except that sometimes because of the cramped space and the the buttons are designed to be easily pressable, <laughs> sometimes they accidentally get pressed. Uh, so they, they they sometimes had to engineer kind of low-tech solutions to still make the emo buttons reliable but be less likely to be accidentally bumped. It looked like a tape roll that they put on it. Honestly. Yeah, I mean, they said, you know, for as much high-tech equipment as they have above them, sometimes... It's the low-tech solutions which uh, put the smile on their faces when things don't ha- th- bad things don't happen. Oh, uh, one more thing, I guess. I don't know if they showed you this, but they had that whole 3D modeling thing, right? So they had, I guess, contractors with laser surveyors going all around, and they keep doing that. And basically, they have a 3D model of the entire subfab space with every single pipe, whatever, detailed out. So that whenever they need to correct something or they need to fix something. So, um, yes, I did see that. So they were saying that um, because the EUV machines were being retrofitted into where a place, places where other machines already had been. So the subfab underneath was already um, was had been set up for the machines that were there in the first place. So when the EUV, EUV machines come along and they have a different set of requirements... The subfab has to be built in such a way that accommodates them. But if you've already got pipes and cables in there, you have to be able to fit what the EV machines need in a certain way. So that's where the modeling comes in. And then when a, when when they 
send uh, the schematics out for, say, a pipe to be manufactured. The pipe would come in, they'd stick the pipe in, and then they'd use the laser machines to, you know, do a pass around where the pipe is. So what actually happens in the fab matches what happens in their plans. This was previously done with a, a person with a tape measure, and they said with the laser tools that they used, they could easily, you know, uh, survey a hundred different points within a very small area within a given day and that used to take a week with a guy with a tape measure but uh, they were using external contractors for that right and they're saying that uh, usually at any one time they have about 300 ca- contractors on site for you know and uh, that can go up to 3,000 when they're doing something big this compared to the whole site which has 3,300 employees uh, you know, ranging from machine management machine repair to uh, I think they said they had 600 R&D staff on site. Mm-hmm. But then you've also got to have people who you know, manage the wastewater. You've got to have people who manage all the explosive. <laughs> um, the, uh, There's a great room called the pyrophoric room. <laughs> you know, for all the chemicals that combust when exposed to air, like uh, I don't know, phosphorus and lithium and all the nice group one metals. Um, I mean, so, I'm sorry. Go, go, go on. I was just going to say, so some of those extra people, too, are just kind of permanent fixtures, especially the, the ASML guys for all the tools. They just kind of never leave. They're just always there to maintain. So even if they're not technically part of the 3,300 people, they're just always there anyway. Part, part of the yeah. 300 contractors right. that are currently on site, yeah. I mean, so that that, that was a subfab. Um, again, a very such an important part of um, what is a very critical element in our industry. It's... It's, you know, we can talk about, um, you know, things like smartphones. We can talk, talk about things like graphics cards and PCs and laptops. And then actually, you know, that 150 square millimeter piece that's taken several months to make and several thousand people and several billion dollars worth of investment just to get through, um, is ra- rather amazing that these, these things even work. Um, so you know, all credit to people at the foundries, and you know, you know, thanks to Global Foundries for actually letting us walk through and um, grub things up. <laughs> um, Ogle at everything, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't see anybody lick anything. <laughs> you know, if you lick it, it's yours. Is, is, is that how it works? Um, I mean, they, they did give us a, um, a little bit, a bit of other info. Um, so they're expecting their first seven nanometer tape out. At the end of 2018, that's going to be a fully optical process. Um, they said they've got two big customers coming on board in 2019. They weren't at liberty to say who they were, um, but these are people who are, you know, going to be big into seven nanometers. So and not new, so not AMD or IBM. No, no, because they're already customers. So these are two new big customers. Uh, they also said regarding their 14 nanometer production, they've actually added 60% capacity. Over the last um, three years, either you know by installing new machines by phase three, or um, just re- redesigning their clean room and subfab to be able to cope with uh, just pushing out more wafers. And it's been at hundred percent capacity for like the past year. So. Yeah, past five quarters. Um, so the rest of the tour we had was uh, sort of presentations and interviews, and I, I rather than talk about them on a podcast, I'd rather write them up because they were pretty detailed. Um, and, you know, we did talk about things like um, 22FDX, uh, Global Foundries, FDSOI, um, and also their 12 nanometer FDSOI and Global Foundries um, radio frequency capabilities and how things are moving forward and how they compete against, you know, a TSMC who is six times their size. It was, I mean, I, I've been on several factory tours and, you know, this is a slightly different tour, but... Global Foundries had seemed to have a lot of confident people. Whether it was the um, you know the CTO who was you know very adamant that EUV would definitely be using seven nanometer, and they've got no qualms that seven nanometer will be a long-lived node, all the way down to um, the guy managing areas of the subfab. You know, he's not on the critical end, but he's still a critical part of the process, and he wanted to grab life by the horns. The guy who showed us around in the clean room, he kept saying like his job is all about efficiency. Any small thing that went wrong was like money out the door. He was just, <laughs> it was kind of impressive to, to hear that. Um, so we're, we're coming up to about an hour on on the podcast, and I think I think we're kind of there. I and mean, it's yeah, 
definitely one of the highlights of my career in this industry so far. And uh, I fully hope Global Foundries uh, gets involved in the media a lot more in the future. Um, and I'm trying to push that to make it happen. And if companies like TSMC also want to do that or, you know, Samsung Foundry, then we want to talk. Uh, you know where to find us. And so I want to thank Nate um, for his first podcast. Yeah. Sorry for the coughing. No, it's all right. Um, we'll, we'll get you on some more podcasts. It sounds like you want to come and do a few more sure, ev- right. events events for Anantech. So I think be I've right. been a little spoiled, though. I mean, having a clean room visit on my first ever factory. Yeah. Tour, like, I can't expect that to happen. It's Yeah, yeah. it's life goes downhill from here, mate. <laughs> uh, and uh, th- thanks to you, you all for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time.